0: Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Bandroom Podcast. My name is Dylan Maddox, and here we are in September. That's right, folks. It has caught up to us, finally. And I imagine maybe some of you are back in the classroom, or maybe you're in front of a computer screen teaching, or or maybe you're like me and you, you start next week, uh, and maybe you're still trying to figure out how to fit all of those chairs in your room with two meters distance in between them, Either way, you probably need a break, and we have a great excuse for a break because we have a new episode for you with another great guest. But before we get to that great guest, please do me a huge, a giant, a humongous favor and head over to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to fine podcasts like this one and give the Bandroom Podcast a rating and a review because this really helps get the word out to others. Ultimately, bringing more joy into people's lives. And like I said last month, who doesn't want to bring more joy into people's lives? What are you, the Grinch of band? No, you want to bring joy into their lives. So go give us a rating and a review. And your review might be featured on a future episode of BRP. So please do that. Anyway, now that my sales pitch is out of the way, I can tell you a little bit about today's guest. I first met them in 2019 at Music Fest Canada in our nation's capital, but I've known of her for much longer. For the past 16 years, Dr. Wendy Zander McCullum has been on faculty at Brandon University in Manitoba, where she conducts the symphonic band and teaches undergraduate and graduate courses in music education and conducting. She has been involved with some pretty amazing organizations and and still is involved with some of these organizations, but she has been the past conductor of the National Youth Band of Canada, past president of the Manitoba Band Association, and the only Manitoban and female president of the Canadian Band Association. Like I said, I've heard from many of Wendy's students about how amazing she is, and now I hear from my colleagues about how amazing she is, amazing person, an amazing mind, an amazing musician, and getting to know her a little bit more after this interview, I couldn't agree more. Hearing her talk about her students, why she does what she does, and the importance of keeping true to yourself as a conductor was a real inspiration. So, without further ado, here is my conversation. With Dr. Wendy Xander McCullum, I'm very excited today um, to bring you um, someone that I have only really met once in person, um, but have met a couple of times uh, over the internet now. Um, and it's someone I've I've looked up to a, for a long time, uh, just seeing the National Youth Band and and the things like all the cool things happening at Brandon University, and that is Dr. Wendy McCollum. So, welcome to the band room, Wendy.
1: Thank you, Dylan. Happy to be here.
0: And um, it should be said, I'll be honest. Um, sometimes I try to go James Lipton on these things, and I like text people um, and ask ask if they have questions. So I, I texted our friend Mark Hopkins. And he was very excited that I was interviewing you. And he's, he's like, Wendy is a band geek through and through. She bleeds valve oil. That's, that's... <laughs> so it was very exciting. Um, uh, I'm super excited just, just to learn a little bit more about you and, and to share your story with with our listeners. Um, so we might as well start at the beginnings. Uh, so where, where did you get your start?
1: Awesome question. Well, um, I always... Think about myself as a farm kid, so I grew up in Manitoba. So I'm a Manitoban teaching in Manitoba, um, in a community uh, very rural. I grew up 16 miles from the place I went to elementary school and 26 miles from where I went to high school. So you can imagine that 75-minute morning bus ride where I did my homework, and um, I uh, went to a school called Benito School, and then I went on to Swan Valley Regional Secondary School, and I was very blessed um, for a couple of things. Number one, my mom had always wanted to take piano lessons and hadn't, so she made it clear that that was going to be a a priority in our household, so I started taking piano lessons as a kid, um, and Um, I also then fed into the Benito school band program and started taking band. And at that time we had the genius of Willie Connell and Tony Klein. And those, um, those two were amazing band directors who uh, made sure that in Swan river, there was a very cohesive program that included private lessons. Um, So in Benito school, we would get these private or, or small group lessons every week on our instruments and uh, then I fed through to the high school. Um, at that time, um, Willie Collin was there for my first year, grade 10 bound, and then he left to Alberta and started the festival and worked for St. John's Music, and I in turn had um, Tony Klein. And when I was in grade 12, he took me um, into his office. He said, here, you might as well learn the flute, here, you might as well learn the trumpet, and I got a chance to do a few things right. uh, like that as well. So. I had wonderful piano teachers through my journey, uh, doing the sort of rural conservatory exams and all the rest of it, and then joined the band on the saxophone. Oh. Now, to be honest, I wanted initially to play the horn, yes. but uh, I found out there was no horn in jazz band at the regional. <laughs> so, so I, which there probably would have been if I'd have played the horn and asked to play in the jazz band. It's just like my right. mindset. So, so that was why i played the saxophones because i love the sound of the jazz band and in turn when i was at the university of north dakota i did play horn in the second band i loved
0: (laughs) loved the sound so much but yeah come true yeah Yeah. horn was my first choice and then and actually second was saxophone but in pei you have to test into um the band programs and you get upgraded to saxophone from clarinet (laughs) (laughs) so uh anyway so i got trumpet (laughs) <laughs> and um sp- speaking of well Manitoba because that's where you're from um it's it's always been known to me about the quality of Manitoba band programs um so I'm wondering uh what were maybe some of your early uh, musical inspirations growing up in in Manitoba
1: Right well you know the it's true that the culture Mm-hmm. of a program is important and a lot of people are talking about that and trying to put their finger on what makes it and I've done a lot of thinking about that too. Um, in terms of my own beginning and the, and the the culture that we established at the University in Brennan. And I feel like um, I was led forward in music uh, by the the wonderful teachers I had, but also the people that were a part of music making. So when I got to the regional, those folks that I played with in the high school band, those people are still a part of, of what I consider to be, a, you know, the foundational for me. So right. what is very unique is many people that I played in high school band with, their kids are now coming through, you know, and being music majors at the university or, you know, I'll run into them and... and, and often now already some of them have grandchildren who are coming through so I think um you had I had my my teachers and and just the culture of of what music means to a community and I think that is is really key um we have what I would term a lot of first generation band folks now Mm -hmm. so they've immigrated to the country their parents maybe weren't involved in band Um, I was my 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 family we were first generation band folks my parents didn't have a chance to participate in band but the culture that is established of maybe because there are parents who were in band or but this this whole idea of band is something where we develop as a community band is a way that we celebrate who we are and it's, it's more than just the training of the individual. It's, it's bigger than that. It's like James Jordan talks about the ensemble as an organism. Mm-hmm. The community itself is an organism. And when they value music in that way, and when there are multi-generations of band students who have come through they value it they understand that it's more than words can express and i think that's the way swan river was for me that Mm -hmm. that whole idea of being a part of the jazz ensemble i mean i remember traveling to the brandon jazz festival in high school when it when it first started and and that being an important part of showing what we could do and and having that that piece of identity i mean i still have my school jacket that says band and basketball <laughs> on the sleeve, right. you know? <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah. And, and it, the band director's kids all played bass. Actually, um, Dean, uh, Tony's son was my basketball coach. Like we all did sport and we did music and it was everybody worked together and it was just a part of the culture. So mm-hmm. I think when you talk about Manitoba, having those strong programs, I really feel like music is a part of the communities those communities, those smaller communities. And we do have the advantage in Manitoba of having a lot of mid-sized towns that really thrive on the music making that happens in those, those schools. You look at the community like Killarney where they have a, you know, an annual summer band, or you look at Swan River now as a community band or the wonderful um, community bands that, that go on across the province or, or, um, you know, the musical theater things that take advantage of the instrumentalists and the singing that goes on. So I think the community-based piece is really important.
0: Right. Oh, it's wonderful. And, um, and I I know there's, there's a lot of uh, listeners who maybe uh, are going into music or maybe they're in music, but they're not sure where they're going from there. Um, so, uh, this question kind of helps with that. Uh, when when was that moment that you decided, like, I, I want to try to do this music thing as for a career? Because I know you have a very interesting path. Whenever you do get to university, it's not where people expect you to. I don't right. know you now, yeah. So am I talking about that? <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, when you say when you went into music, like in my head, I was pre-law. That was oh, okay. My yeah, was pre-law. So i um really loved English in school, mm-hmm. I loved English and I took french and i I loved the humanities and i and I thought first you know I kind of wandered through things I thought i was going to be um, I thought I was going to be in journalism at first, and then I kind of changed my path i'm like, no uh laws where I should go because i'm I'm a good thinker, and you know counselor somewhere told me that would be a good thing for me to do right so I went into music as pre law, but it only took me. A semester to know that music was a whole thing that I had only just cracked open through my studies you know um, and more on that later but I feel like um, I really got a chance once I got to university to be in a in a community at the at Brandon University where I did my undergrad uh, where I could even seek new understandings in new and amazing ways and uh, then I was Then I was really hooked. So I actually probably wasn't completely hooked until my first year of music. Mm -hmm. And then it was clear, like, yeah, I'm going to do music education. And this is who I am. This is who I'm going to be. I really came to value that and those experiences. The other hook that I didn't mention was um, when I was in elementary school, I had a teacher, Mrs. Struthers. She was my classroom teacher for three entire years. And she used to play the piano and for us in class. And she had a choir an elementary school choir and she let me play the piano for the choir. And I mean, how exciting is that as an elementary school kid to get to play for, you know, for um, your, your peers. And so I think that when I hit that spot in university, I remembered and valued those inspirations even more and, and wanted to move forward from there. Right.
0: Yeah. Cause I think a lot of us have uh, in mind that all, all of you guys had it figured out right away and, you know, had a very direct path to where you are. <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, and it's important to know that, you know, time and decision-making is a normal thing and maybe you don't go directly in, uh, and it takes, you know, a year or whatever to figure out that this is for you. Um,
1: well also Dylan, I think one other thing, if I could add yep. is, um, because i I changed the way that I heard and understood music, the more you learn, the more you realize you don 't know. I came out of taking piano lessons where my teachers were great and and I, and I accomplished all of this repertoire and all this technique, but i didn 't hear music mm-hmm. at the piano. I heard what I was doing, but i didn 't hear the music and through the saxophone and through my jazz ensemble experiences um, with with Tony Klein, I heard the music. I improvised every day in jazz ensemble. I, I, I really learned the saxophone differently than I learned the piano. And when I got to the university and we really started doing oral skills, and I started improvising and playing with the big band, which in my first year Glenn Price conducted, um, I really got a chance to all of a sudden realize, oh man, there are other people that hear music this way, or there are other people that that perform music this way and it sort of opened my eyes to the complexities and the capacities for sound that really had not been there before. Right
0: and uh, you well you just talked about saxophone and, and how that was your instrument in high school but I know that whenever you did go to Brandon you didn't start off on saxophone as a saxophone major. So could you talk about your time at Brandon and maybe some of the other exciting things that you, you did outside of Brandon as well?
1: Sure. Um, well, I when I started at Brandon, I was a piano major. So I auditioned as a piano major. And I um, after my um, time as a piano major and, and auditioning, I actually played the saxophone probably more every day than I did the piano, right. um, which I'm sure my piano instructor knew. Um, but I was... Um, in a saxophone quartet with, with, um, you know, Roger Manti, who now teaches at UT Scarborough. I was um, playing in the concert band with Alan Ennis and uh, with William Gordon, Bill Gordon, um, and Glenn Price on saxophone and Barry saxophone. Um, I was playing in jazz ensemble with Glenn Price and Wayne Bowman with um, saxophone. I was playing in combos on the side with Les Payne, on saxophone. So I had all of these things that were saxophones. So I did my first three years of music. And then I started to kind of doubt myself. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm doing all this, I was still playing the piano. But the further that I went along, I liked the piano less and less as a means for me to, to um, communicate what music was starting to really mean to me. And so I, after my third year, just thought I'm going to take this year and go overseas and work on, uh, it was a French exchange program, so I actually uh, went to uh, just outside of Paris, south of Paris, uh, just at Côté de Versailles, so I lived about six or seven kilometers from Versailles, and, um, and I had that year to really just learn who I was, because nothing teaches you who you are better than being placed in an environment where nothing is familiar, right? So you have to decide what you want to keep and what you can give away. And one of the things that I really decided that I wanted to keep was the saxophone in all of its colors. And so um, I I went there with my books to study for my LSAT again, because I was thinking, okay, this was pre-law. Maybe I, maybe (laughs) I really should do that. So I went and I took my saxophone and my LSAT books. And at the end of the day, the saxophone came out triumphantly <laughs> on top. And uh, I ended up re-auditioning uh, for the School of Music as a saxophone major instead okay. of going back in piano. And then finished off and did my education um, and and moved on to teach. So the Brandon piece was so wonderful because it allowed me to be be a singer in my first year. It allowed me to be a jazz musician. It allowed me to play classical. It allowed me to, right. to really do a lot of different things at the same time. Because I think we, we ask kids to become really focused. Oh, you're going to do this or you're going to do that. And so I, I think that I got a chance to nibble a lot of different pieces as an undergrad. Hmm. Um, probably with most of my focus and energy at the time going into jazz ensemble and just right. what that was to me. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah, and especially, you know, if you're going to be a music educator, it's, it's really good to have this kind of choice to explore during your, your studies and, and all that. Um, and you mentioned um, after Brandon, you went to go teach. And I was, I was wondering if you could talk about that experience, uh, maybe your first, what was the first year like for you uh, and any highlights at, at the schools that you were at?
1: Right. So my first year of teaching was in Blumenort, Manitoba, which is just outside of Steinbach, south of Winnipeg. And I had replaced a very well-known junior high director named Tim Kretschmer. And Tim taught grade seven to nine band at Blumenort. And um, and actually, what I will say about that is it was mandatory band. So every kid in the school was in band. And um, when I had them all at once, it was like, over 100 kids so it wasn't a massive program but that's a lot of kids to to have oh yeah so um my first job i was the band teacher for grade seven eight and nine i taught grade six french grade nine french two sections of grade seven science grade nine homeroom and i coached the jv boys basketball team
0: oh
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) so it was a full plate it was a full plate. Yeah. But actually I've, I've, what I did discover is that coaching basketball and it's one of the reasons that I really wanted to do it was just another way to connect. And I coached the boys basketball team. Uh, it was another way to connect to those, those gentlemen mm-hmm. off, you know, off out of the classroom and off the stage and, and in the gym where they're um, perhaps I could say that the uh, repercussions of misbehavior were really important to them, right? Mm-hmm. They wanted to be playing on the court. They wanted to be participating on the team. It was a tryout thing,
0: right. and
1: um, so it gave me some leverage to to really support their best behavior, right? So. Yeah. So what did I learn from that first year? Uh, Probably I learned two very important lessons there. There's two I can think of. The first one was a situation I had with a young man who really was energetic in the classroom. (laughs) It's right from day one. He, He really worked hard to keep his focus in check. And one day he, you know, I was, there was some misbehaving going on in the corner of the room and I got after him and I, I kind of, you know, I lost it just a little bit and and maybe raised my voice in front of the class. And, um, later on, I found out that it wasn't him. It was another student that had been goofing around and first year teacher mistake. I had raised my voice and I went to him afterwards and I said, look, um, I'm really sorry. Um, I was really upset at the time and I, and I realized you hadn't done anything wrong. And I, I apologize cause I know what a, you know, great kid you are and I appreciate you and, and so on. And I got a phone call from the mother and I thought, oh boy, so I, I went to the office and I took the phone call and the mom said, ah, uh, yes, I'm calling to talk to you about what happened today. And, um, I just want to thank you because I realized that my son is often in trouble at school but you're taking the time to apologize to him when you realize that he hadn't done anything wrong, meant the world to him. And he came straight home from school and told me about it. And it really meant a lot to him. And I thought, yeah, you know, (laughs) Uh, that was something really wonderful. And the other thing that I learned was um, related to that, which is, you don't, you don't raise your voice. You don't, um, you don't get frustrated. And I learned that lesson um, at the final concert of the year. Um, We always got into the gym and had that full concert together at the end of the year. It was a Kretschmar tradition that I was carrying Mm -hmm. on. And we did our dress rehearsal in the gym. So every band student's there and they're stacked up on risers and we're going to play through our tunes, first year teacher, you know, getting everything organized, (laughs) everybody's got, you know. And there was a young lady, her name was Allison, and she was talking. And I was and I was frustrated because she doesn't ever talk. She was just a wonderful young lady. And I said, Allison, I need you to behave. You know, I got after a little bit. And um, later that day, she and her cousin were driving to baseball on an um, ATV, as you do when you're a 14-year-old girl in Bloominart. <laughs> I guess they just upped on the ATV to drive to baseball and they came out of the ditch, went across the highway and she was killed. And the only thing I could remember is that I got angry with her that day. It was just such a silly little thing, but you know, the the impression that you give other students is based on the impression you have with each individual student and the Mm -hmm. actions we take on that daily basis, make a difference to how every kid in the room feels. And so I always think, how did she feel that day after I had gotten after her, you know? And so I I carry that lesson with me because I remember that those, those interactions are so key. They're so important.
0: Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. That's, I'm glad people can't see tears on podcasts. Um <laughs> uh, I think it really beautiful advice and and we we all, you know it, our first reaction always is and the first and easiest reaction is to answer with anger, but it's always a, a wonderful reminder to to answer with love and yeah, cuz I I know I I think the story you just told is uh, much heavier than anything I've had, but certainly I think about we you, we have no idea what kids are going through and for, who are we to to add that to their their day, mm-hmm. huh. and yeah. a- after your first year, or maybe not your first year, but you didn't spend um, your whole public school teaching career at Bloom Bloom North. Did you, where did you go after that?
1: I left there, um, and I moved up to Nipaw, Manitoba. And Nipaw is a community about an hour out of Brandon, um, just north east of Brandon, Mm -hmm. and it's a wonderful community, very supportive of the arts, Um, and I replaced there a longtime um, band director named Stu Butterfield, who had died, Um, he had cancer, and had passed away, and so, um, talk about big shoes to Mm fill, he had been, um, if you happen to look up the RCMP band, he was one of the clarinet Uh, section members in the RCMP band when it disbanded in the 80s and so he went on to start teaching there and and was a very well respected member of the community and a wonderful band director so I replaced him there and I was there for three years um, and I had just fabulous kids in that program and um, you know great support from my colleagues there and uh, I had a chance to really just have a wonderful time with the students because one of the biggest challenges when you go into a new school for any teacher is oh Mr. Smith didn't do it that way you know and I was very fortunate um, in some ways because I never got that I mean they were they were a morning there had been one teacher hired um, for a year after he had passed and uh, then that teacher was there for the year and then I was hired. So, so you know, they, they were dealing with the death of Mr. Butterfield or they were students who hadn't had Mr. Butterfield. And one of the things that because that year had passed before I was hired, mm-hmm. I was able actually to go in and scoop up some of the kids who had dropped following his passing. So uh, there was great numbers and a mandatory band in grade six, 75 grade sixes. and then all of the grade seven eights and there was about a 60 um retention rate for those grades and then the nine to 12 which believe it or not at that time uh the grade 10 11 12 was extracurricular so i was doing um um, grade 10 11 and 12 band during lunch hours and altered with jazz ensemble uh, between lunch hours and then uh pit band musical theater And I had a percussion club and I had some, a brass ensemble um, Canadian brass kind of style piece. And yeah, it was a big position with lots of fun. I was in two schools balancing the uh, grade, uh, grade five general music, grade six band in one school and then grade seven to 12 band at the other school. So it was a great, great gig. I loved it there. And, And in fact, when I really had no intention to, to leave that, I thought I would, I would be the Mr. Klein of Nipua, you know. I'm
0: right. Like, yeah.
1: Great community.
0: Yeah. And um, what what was it that that made you think that you wanted to go, you know, go further in your studies and and leave leave teaching, maybe pursue a um, master's?
1: I could see my holes. Mm. I could see my holes. Um, so when people ask me about going on to graduate work, like um, you know, I'm thinking about going to graduate work. Where do you think I sh- I should go? You know, that kind of question. Um, and I always say, well, what do you want to learn? And then usually there's a pause and it's like, well, I want a grad degree. Well, the, you, you pursue education because there's something you want to know. And um, I knew that I wasn't as good a communicator on the podium as I could be. Um, so just to back up, during those years when I was teaching,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I took summer study. And I just, I I mean, I was just engaged. I did a summer one week with Alan McMurray at Brandon University. I did a summer one week with Alan McMurray at the University of Alberta. I did jazz camps at the University of Manitoba. I did jazz camps in Boulder, Colorado. I was the executive assistant for the Mile High Jazz Camp at CU Boulder for a number of years. Uh, Brent Campbell had me doing that and I helped coordinate all the counselors um, for that and um, I was taking some private lessons on jazz improv with um, the jazz pianist Les Payne, who was here in Brandon, and I was doing a lot of studying. I could see I had holes, and I knew I was good at writing papers, and I did a French minor. I could I could write papers in French. I could write papers in English. I, I felt pretty comfortable about that, but mm-hmm. I didn't feel like I had that same freedom and flexibility when I picked up my saxophone. I didn't feel right. like I had that same freedom and flexibility when I stepped on the podium. And when I was listening for things and I didn't like them, um, I had a vocabulary, but I wanted more. And so I kind of had that list of things that I wanted to do and I knew um, that I that i could follow through with that so i having had done a couple of weeks over a couple of years with alan mcmurray was thinking that that was someone that because he's a, he's a master yeah. i also uh, contacted jerry king i worship you know the the work that jerry did when he worked with my junior high bands i c- can still remember the things that he told them right. um And, you know, watching Jillian in the late 80s do the Westman Honor Band at Brandon, you know, just seeing the ease with which they could target in here. So I just had a list of things that I wanted to be better at. And and then the opportunity came for me um, by attending a conducting symposium at the University of North Dakota. And I... I found out about the symposium on Tuesday on Thursday I drove down to North Dakota um, got a hotel room and Friday morning I was sitting in a symposium and by Saturday afternoon I was at uh, Gordon Brock's desk and he was offering me an assistantship (laughs) just like literally (laughs) between Tuesday and Saturday you know it just went that quickly and then in turn, it just the timing wasn't right in my in my life and family life, and so I ended up teaching an additional year at um, Vincent Massey High School, where I, at the time it was junior high and and high school. So I taught there with Brent Campbell for a year before I went down to the University of North Dakota. Mm-hmm. Um, when you talk about education, Dylan, mm-hmm. you know. It's true, you know, we look at people's bios and you say, okay, they have a master's from here and she, you know, she has a master's from the University of North Dakota and a doctorate from the University of North Texas. And, yeah. But some of the best learning experiences of my life, I feel like I should have had to have paid Brent Campbell tuition <laughs> for the year that I taught with him, right? Yeah. Because I learned so much about management and um, about expectations and standards and organization from Brent. And um, I say the same thing about my uh, dear and treasured colleague, um, Ken Epp, who was the Executive Director of the Manitoba Band Association. Between Manitoba Band Association and Canadian Band Association, I was on the board for like 14 years or something no, I think it was 11 years, 11 years, it was a long time. And every one of those minutes was with Ken app. And I feel like I should have been like writing an annual, you know, sort of like, okay, Ken, here's the tuition <laughs> for what I learned from you here. Right. Uh, and I told them all the time, Ken, I should have to pay you tuition because um, you know, those key people that aren't in a structured learning environment, but if you just take a deep breath, you see how much you can learn from them, colleagues, mm-hmm. whatever else. Yeah. But yeah, so that's how I, that's that took me down to the University of North Dakota. Right. Yeah.
0: And yeah. Well. And I just I just want to emphasize something you're saying. Um, and you know, it's something that I've been told many times. But if 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 you're having trouble rehearsing, it's probably because you don't know how to practice. And and we often forget how correlated like just being a musician on your instrument is to being a teacher and being a conductor and all of that. Um, so it's a really wonderful reminder. Um, to what we need to do. And I know at the University of North Dakota, this is something that you got to do on top of your connecting studies. You still were uh, able to focus on your performance studies. So I was wondering if you could talk about your time there, um, studying with Gordon Brock and, and James Popejoy. Yeah. So,
1: yeah. You know, I was so very lucky. Um, Gordon Brock is a wonderful uh, Canadian musician who is um, living up in Saskatoon now. And uh, he is... Um, the reason that I went down to University of North Dakota. So the genealogy of wind, right? So (laughs) Gort was from Saskatchewan, right? He grew up in Saskatchewan. He taught most of his uh, teaching career in Edmonton, but he did his master's with Gene Corporan in Michigan, where he went on scholarship to play the saxophone with Donald Sinta and then ended up doing his doctorate with Alan McMurray.
0: Wow. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> at
1: the University of Colorado and Boulder. So when I, when I what uh, drew me to the University of North Dakota was I had been studying with Alan McMurray. And when I saw that, that in fact, um, Gordon Brock had been studying with Alan right before he came to the University of North Dakota that automatically I was like oh well I'm I love his pedagogy I'm gonna go find out what he's like so I ended up at the University of North Dakota so there's Gordon Brock this wonderful teacher and he gave me so much I remember sitting in the in the boardroom off of the library going through my videos after our first you know concert and I remember he said to me Wendy, um, Shelly, which is um, Gord's wife, she's a nurse practitioner, Shelly and I have been talking last night after the concert, and I really think you need to do, consider doing a doctorate. And that was, I mean, that meant so much to me to have that kind of encouragement early in my degree, that Mm -hmm. right, right from the get go, I felt empowered. I had no intention of doing a doctorate. I was just there to fill holes. But, but I really felt empowered from that from those early statements. And they just treated me like family, mm-hmm. um, both Shelley and Worden. And um, so I, while I was there, the instrument, um, Inventory needed recataloging and organization. The music library needed some help. Gord planned a millennium tour that was 2000 to England, Ireland, Scotland. And I got to be in charge of fundraising and administration for that. So here I was. (laughs) (laughs) Thrown into my first year. Meanwhile, in the first band, the the wind ensemble, I played um, very saxophone. In the second band, I played horn. Mm -hmm. And in the community orchestra, which Gord also conducted, I, I helped with percussion, I played timpani. Oh. So I got a chance to like have this very well, I lived right like right on campus, I could walk back and forth and I just got this well-rounded and busy, engaged time. Mm-hmm. Um, music theory and music history just cracked right open for me there too. Right. Small yep. cohort of graduate students in my class and we just got the very best, like there were three of us in my music graduate music history and and theory, so we really got a lot out of that and then at the end of that year Gord took the job as the dean at the University of North Florida so here I was without a teacher so I kind of looked into trying to transfer to see Boulder but I would lose so many credit hours and Gord's program there was University of North Florida didn't have a master's in conducting so they called me and said we're interviewing this guy named James Popejoy tomorrow morning they called me in the afternoon the day before he's coming in, he's flying in tomorrow morning sorry for the short notice can you be here right so I got my car again drove down to Grand Forks North Dakota and uh, was thrilled that they hired Jim and that I got a chance to work with him for that last year now the two teachers between Gordon and Jim they're just similar in so many ways and different in so many ways right. so I got a chance to see very different management styles and repertoire choices and and Jim is just an amazing human being too. And, and with him, he really dug in and said to me, well, what else do you want to be able to do? And, you know, if you were going to go on for a doctorate, here's what you'd need. Mm-hmm. And having recently finished his um, DMA at the University of North Texas, he was able to say to me, you need this, 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 and this and i had such a positive experience you know we really dug into the the standards of the repertoire i mean, remember doing papers for him on doll's symfonietta and you know analyzing the hymn of the symphony he sent me through all those works and said you need to know this you need to understand right. and um you know i had a great year with him a little funny story was i i got this really bad bronchial infection in my last semester it was just horrible and I woke up one day and I, I, st- I was trying to get ready for class and I felt so poorly that I pa- and I pa- started to panic. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't catch my breath. So I called um, Jim and his wife, Melanie, um, mm-hmm. and they said, we'll be right there. So they picked me up and the next thing you know, I was at the, in the emergency room. So they do some tests and yes, I have a bronchial infection and yes, I have mono. So the next thing I know, I'm in the basement at the Pope Joyce for like a week, being nursed back to health by the Pope Joyce. And um, that's the kind of connection I felt there, right? And then when I got better after that week, they dropped me off at home. And then Jim would come and pick me up and drive me to school for my class and then (laughs) drop me off again. Can you imagine? Yeah right? That's the kind of human beings we're dealing yeah. with. We're just amazing people. And um, so, you know, it took a good, you know, two to three weeks for me to get back on my feet. And that's the kind of experience I had at the University of North Dakota, you know, just yeah. thorough and complete.
0: So you heard here, folks, if, if you're looking to go to graduate studies, you need to find a teacher who's willing to let you live in their basement when you have mono, take care of you that's just kind of mean. above and beyond right yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. very
1: much there yeah
0: that wasn't in the tuition but <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, and yeah and we, we, you were mentioning uh you know just having that early approval of of you know going to go to a doctorate um so was it right to north texas after north dakota
1: yeah when i was in my second year at und with with um Jim. then he was going to do a conducting symposium in the spring like gordon had established and so he was going to bring in this fellow eugene corporon and of course i knew university of north texas and i knew cincinnati and i knew the recordings and and i knew a lot about him from uh, the fact that um jim pokejoy had been his student but i i don't think i was quite prepared for uh, the experience until he came in the room and worked with the group and worked with me on the podium and mm-hmm. and uh following that interaction at the symposium you know as all symposiums wrap up there's a meal at the end and we went out for dinner and um Jim told him that I was looking to go to graduate school and follow through with a DMA and uh and he offered me a spot at the dinner table wow. so <laughs> i went <laughs> i went Um, he said let me get things in order but I think you you know you you'd work well at UNT Mm -hmm. you know I'll confirm things on Monday would you be willing to come in the fall so yeah so that was really lucky because they had a spot at that year because um yeah it was the absolute right thing for me to do
0: wow and and what what was it what, what was it like studying well at UNT and and with you know Eugene Corpron, who's on the, the Mount Rushmore of, <laughs> of wind band conductors and, and educators. Uh, so could you talk about your time there?
1: Yeah. Um, first of all, you know, at the time I was at UNT, there's close to 2,000 music majors. Wow. 600 of which are graduate students. Mm-hmm. So you're surrounded by people who, who are really... Um, there's always someone better than you in that in that environment. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's insane. And, and it's so much less competitive. And that's the one lesson that I learned right away is when you're in a small place, people can get very competitive. But when you're in a big place like that, everyone is just very task oriented with what they they wanted to do. And I can talk about the experience from two levels, the first one of which is what I got from the faculty there, like working with with Eugene Corcoran was an amazing and he had he had us as teaching fellows you know teaching conducting classes working with his wind studies class conducting the concert band and I was also the librarian for wind studies which took care of the folders and music purchase and all of his scores for wind symphony symphonic band two concert bands and the brass band so I had this massive workload I mean I would often spend you know, six to eight hours a day managing my my three staff mm-hmm. who worked in the Winston's Library, and then I was in charge of preparing the scores for the uh, teaching fellows and for for Professor Corcoran and for uh, Mr. Fisher, Dennis Fisher, who was the assistant there. So <clears throat> there was a lot of work. It was a lot of work. Plus, we attended every rehearsal for, you know. Um, I had my office in my room in my apartment and I mean, there was scores and books and papers, you know, I'm taking courses and I studied year round there. I didn't take any semesters off. Okay. So I did spring semester, summer semester, winter semester, fall semester. So it just kept going for those two years. I was there. Um, and it was amazing. So I started in the, the July, um, I guess that'd be 2001. I started in July of 2001 and then I just kept going straight through until <laughs> I left in 2003, um, basically left there in June and, and moved to my, my first position. But uh, it was an absolutely inspiring time because of the sound. hmm first experienced the hall at UNT at a CBDNA conference and I remember watching Professor Corporan rehearse and think like, oh my gosh, look at him teach in this rehearsal, this dress rehearsal. Look yeah. at him teach. Look at him, look at him pull the sound. Look at him clarify his meaning. Um and so I was just in awe of that process and of, of the knowledge base that led to that. And I'm not talking about technical law knowledge, although he possesses that. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about a sound knowledge, about a concept in his mind's ear that was so clear. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is the key to his, his masterful recordings, is he comes with a concept that's absolutely clear. And sometimes i I know he'll, he'll be on the phone with composers and he has a sound concept that maybe doesn't exactly match right. what the composer was intending, but he, he's confident enough with what he hears to be able to ask for clarification on that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's the one level. Um, when I when I learned at North Texas, that's the faculty level. So I got a chance to um, interact with Deb Rohrer, um, who's the chair of music ed there now and with daryl ramsey who's in the music education department there and i was the teaching fellow with brian bowman the euphonium teacher okay. um and did the brass band um, as his teaching assistant i mean if you could hear one of the world's finest euphonium players on a you know three times a week wouldn't, wouldn't you sign up for that yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it, came like i learned to love and understand what warm means in terms of tone and what supported means and right um, that was an amazing time you know he came from the band programs of Ravelli. he played in Ravelli's band wow. but he but he was nothing like Ravelli in terms of his rehearsal style right. or how he drew things out of the, the band um he just is a wonderful rehearsal technician in his own right. And really, again, had such a good, solid concepts and gave me one of the best quotes of my, my doctorate, which is, Wendy, just remember in your life, there are times when you have much responsibility and little authority. <laughs> <laughs> I've used that a lot of times. So I learned a lot from the faculty, but I also gained a lot from the musicians that were there. Um, I had some very dear friends, my friend Dave Dose on tuba and my friend, um, Catherine Aducci, who's a clear, you know, trumpet player. She, um, I just got so much from hanging with them and the musicians were so encouraging, you know, you'd be on the podium and you'd be rehearsing and it would go well or not go well. Mm-hmm. And you'd get the feedback afterwards. Great job today. You know, I love the way you did this or, you know, I don't. Feel like you're breathing deeply enough for the trumpets on your cue at measure 17 or like just this constant interplay of ideas and and the the social times that we had um that just allowed us to talk about the music talk about composers talk about rehearsals and an open culture of just learning which was amazing
0: yeah and uh you mentioned the recordings and growing up on pei we you know, I, I had Karim Simon, which was great at UPEI, but readily available. I always had those recordings as a young band geek. I was just obsessed with them. And so did you, when I, while you were there, did you have any involvement with, with recordings?
1: Oh yes. Oh. Uh, and for many years. Yeah. So first of all, I actually met Karim Simon at a summer symposium at the university of North Texas, where he was <laughs> participating when I was uh, there as a grad student. And, um, So what, there's a wonderful system. First of all, I have to say like GIA publications is so supportive of the University of North Texas recording for the teaching music series. And on top of that, we also have these wonderful recording sessions that Professor Corcoran would plan annually. So um, we all the teaching fellows were part of the the school year recordings, but then we also did the summer GIA recordings that you're alluding to now. Um, And the wonderful thing about that was its producer, Jack Stamp, who's a former student of professor Corporan and a wonderful composer. And mm-hmm. at the time was uh, at IUPUI and um, he was the producer and I got to be, I got to be the assistant to Jack Stamp. So I sat beside Jack and if he said it, I wrote it down. And, um, and I was next to Bruce Leek, who are recording to, and he would have the headphones on and we'd, take a break and he'd come back and he'd say someone move the bass drum <laughs> and and we'd say pardon me he goes someone moved the bass drum four inches left you know that's what it is. <laughs> and then you could hear on the stage what it like, ah, you moved the bass drum you know that he's, he's just incredible you know he, he would sh- sh- move all of his equipment and be shipped in. He'd come from recording the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. And then he'd come in and record North Texas. And this equipment was just insanely expensive and wonderful. And his ears are just a tune. So I worked with Jack and I would open a package of, you know, refillable, or, um, like lead pencils, you know, yep. with the click, click on top. Five of them. And then by the end of the recording session, they were all empty. Like... <laughs> pages and pages of takes and comments and jack would say better solo that time woodwinds too loud trombones out of tune you know and i would so every take that went through and and the number of seconds on the clock and that was i, I that was my job uh during those recording sessions but all the wind studies uh staff are highly engaged in those and we just learned so much about mm-hmm. yeah. that yeah, great experience great experience
0: wow I had no idea. It's like, you've worked with the who's who of the wind pan world. Uh, this is wonderful. And, um, and after North Texas, uh, where did you go? Was it, was it right to Brandon after that?
1: No. So when I, um, what I love about uh, Professor Corporon is, is it's kind of a family, right? And so um, when I was, um, you know, involved with those recordings, I kept, I wanted to keep going back summer after summer. So even after I graduated and finished, I went back every summer to the collegium just so I could fly in and work for the recording sessions and hang out and visit and so on. So I did that from a number of locations. When I left North Texas, I applied for positions and I secured a position at um, Graceland university, which is in Lamona, Iowa. So okay. I basically didn't even leave I-35. I just got on the highway and headed straight up to Iowa. Mm-hmm. And I taught there for one year. Okay. And uh, I would have stayed longer had the position in Brandon not been opened um, up. But um, I really enjoyed my time there. So I was the applied saxophone teacher. I was the coordinator of woodwind studies. I conducted the jazz band. I conducted the concert band. Um, I taught conducting. I taught brass and percussion techniques. I taught jazz history, and I taught elementary music methods that year.
0: That is heavy.
1: <laughs> it was a big job.
0: Yeah, um,
1: but also wonderful students, um, who have some of which I'm, you know, some of who I still stay in touch with. But mm-hmm. it was a great position. Lovely faculty and. Un- Nice place to live. I had a great townhouse there. I could hear the Amish wagons go by in the evenings, you know, click clock. Yeah. Yeah. And still in the tornado alley, but, but a great place to live. I love, I really uh, like Iowa, such a strong band culture, Mm -hmm. great band programs. And there's something in the, and I'm not even sure what it is, but in, in um, state law, there's something that says that every high school in is, uh, has a high school band program. Right. So right from the get go, there's this rich history, but there's also this support. Uh, I recently got a chance to do an honor band at Luther college, and I got a chance to really see that in action. Again, wow, massive mm-hmm. line players in that, in that state, the Iowa honor band, um, Joe missile. I had studied with Joe Missall at uh, university of North Dakota when he was a clinician with Gord Brock but joe came in and did the iowa all-state the year i was teaching in iowa and the iowa all-state is like a couple hundred kids and there's maybe 80 some clarinets in there and mm-hmm. I, he was doing uh, bernstein's candide i still remember and um southern harmony grantham southern harmony and he said to me uh, we went for dinner later and he said uh, wendy I was rehearsing, and I looked over, and all of a sudden, I saw another row of clarinets I hadn't realized was there in the morning <laughs> rehearsal. <laughs> you know, it's a big group for an all-state, but yeah, that cool. uh, was a great place to teach, and, and I got a really chance to to do a little bit of everything that I'd been mm-hmm. preparing to do all the way along. You know, all those years of private improv paid off <laughs> in my <laughs> right. teaching my my jazz ensemble, um, which I had done in in high school as well. But yeah.
0: And there's been a a couple of guests on the podcast where there's been this super cool full circle moment where, you know, they end up going back to where they did their master's or their undergrad, and this is something that's happened for you. So I was wondering if you could talk about your position uh, at at Brandon, but also, you know, what was it, what's it like being back at your alma mater?
1: Right. Um, Well, teaching in Iowa, I saw something really interesting, which is there was a large number of faculty on that particular campus who had in fact on their undergraduates there. And I saw the sense of satisfaction and contentment Mm -hmm. that they felt having come that for full circle. So that, that in itself was intriguing. Um, It was a little bit intimidating because at Brandon university, I, you know i already mentioned i studied saxophone with bob ford i studied um concert band with alan ennis and bill gordon and i had theory with sister joan and art bauer um, was still on campus robert richardson sylvia richardson and those faculty were still at <laughs> brannan when you know when i applied and so there's there's a bit of trepidation about you know coming to a place that you knew but you're different Right. And the thing I didn't think about enough is, as time progresses, we're all different. Mm-hmm. And so I was really so happy to be a part of that teaching faculty, and they were so open and encouraging and ready for wind bands to have a presence on, on, on the campus. Mm-hmm. Um, there wasn't a full-time person who specialized in instrumental music education, Um, And so they were just really trying to follow what the rest of the country was trying to do, which was build more wind band into the culture of the school. And um, I'm so proud to be a part of that faculty and to be a part of that. And it was also my dream job in that I've always believed in the power and the importance of music education as part of the wind band process. And it's, it's, you can't separate the two. Mm-hmm. So getting a chance to teach music education is an important part of my job. And, and it's one that I really love doing.
0: Right. What kind of, what does your position look like at, at Brandon? And
1: Yeah. Um, so I, um, I teach the wind, um, wind band which is a symphonic band Mm -hmm. it's a large ensemble this year you know it it can range anywhere between sort of 60 and 80 students depending on on it and it's all music majors for the most part um when we do have outstanding high school students in the community that are motivated and committed they can audition for the ensemble as well but Mm -hmm. for the most part it's all music majors um so i teach that i teach elementary conducting And I teach advanced conducting. I share that course with my choral colleague. Um, I teach band jazz methods, which is instrumental music methods for middle years. Mm -hmm. And then I do a senior high version of a course in second semesters um, as well. So that's broken into two courses. So we address specific pedagogy for beginners and developing. And then the more advanced. Um, Graduate students, Every uh, graduate courses every once in a while have had the honor of teaching some wonderful folks in that course, in those courses, pardon me. Mm-hmm. And have I hit everything? There's a little lab band as a part of our techniques class. Yeah, I think that's it.
0: So, so you're busy. Okay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and th- is this, all right, so are you s- 16 years at Brandon?
1: That's correct, yeah.
0: And so there, there must be some highlights.
1: Yeah, uh, well, first of all, I love this feeling that I now have after 16 years of having a community of graduates in music education and seeing them interact in the professional community and be leaders in Manitoba Bound Association and Canadian bound Association and to watch them take the skills that they have I'm also the faculty advisor for the Brandon University student Music Educators Association which is an organization that was created in 1986 and I was, I was the president of it in 91 or something and, and the organization is still going and we do things like a conference every year and we do professional development sessions and all those things. So seeing my students who have been a part of that council who are working to develop their professional identity, watching them take on leadership roles, watching them develop the cultures in their own programs and getting to hear their groups and seeing their students be successful, Mm -hmm. not because they go on in music, but just because they, They make music wonderfully. That's, you know, changing human existence, so to speak. That's, that's for sure the biggest highlight in terms of the ensemble itself. We had some fabulous opportunities in 2009, 2013, Mm -hmm. I was able to take, um, groups on tour. And so in 2009, um, my uh, dream was to do a tour of Eastern Canada yeah we did exactly that with the help of Ron Murphy um, and so what we did is we um, we hopped on some airplanes and of course for some kids it was their first flight ever
0: right. you know
1: some of them have never been to Eastern Canada and we did uh, seven days um, I think we did five concerts we had six scheduled one was canceled due to that um, the virus that was going on in 2009 of course Mm -hmm. and then um we we had just kind of a a, ended up at the atlantic music festival i guess to shorten it all up that our final two concerts were there right and the um, we had Menon La france as our trumpet soloist and um, our clarinet teacher Kathy Wood came along and we did this wonderful showcase concert and my students were amazing and flexible and adaptive and we went to Hubbard's and had lobster and went mm-hmm. to Peggy's Cove and yeah. we had the PI fiddlers came and made music with our musicians and we had chili mussels and buns and you know had a really good East Coast experience. <laughs> yeah. and- and uh thanks thanks to schools out and we we had a great time and then in 2013 i did the same thing but went the other way and doug mccauley h- hosted us at the whistler music festival oh, yeah. and we were the featured ensemble there again similarly totally different group of kids you know four years later and same level of professionalism and commitment and we had eight soloists and we had a couple of premieres, and guest conductors and we had six concerts and and just be clear these these were timed at the end of april after classes ended so what i would do is i would create a music packet, and everybody would get their music package once they'd signed up and then they brought it with them on the airplane and then we started rehearsals when we landed at our destination (laughs) right and uh so we had really intense rehearsals for three days, much like a NYB kind of feeling. And then we would put these concerts together. Sometimes the first concert was a little bit, you know, <laughs> trepidation. but yeah, so we were able to, on that tour, we had a concert with UBC and um, Rob Taylor hosted us there and, mm-hmm. and a couple of uh, shows in Vancouver and, um, and then moved on to, uh, whistler so those were definitely wonderful things and in the last number of years um when the tours haven't been as viable i guess the next highlight has been just the opportunity to work with composers Uh who are coming through our program or who are close to us so we've had wonderful collaborations with pat Carabré before he left to be the the chair of the music department at ubc We did a concert of all of his works and of his students' work, Luis Ramirez, who's now at York University pursuing his doctorate, Um, Chris Byman, who's a Winnipeg composer out of manager of St. John's Music, Kenley Christofferson, who was uh, my graduate student conducting, uh, um, and who we've had a chance to work with him on a euphonium concerto that he wrote for his composition recital. And mm-hmm. Mekin, of course, who lives in Winnipeg now is very close to us and conducted our group um, last semester. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, those, are, those kind of like composer collaborations are definitely right. highlights.
0: Wow. Yeah. And uh, you know, you talked about these tours and, and how they're a highlight for you and your students for sure, but being, a student at the Atlantic Band Festival uh, growing up that those concerts were like pivotal in, in inspiration. So I, I know that somewhere out there, there's there's students that probably were like, this is this is the real deal. And, right. uh, and then the other thing you talked about just the importance of the, the, the cool thing about how, you know, this new brand, not new brand and community, but this um, community of your alumni is, is growing and just like doing loose research and quotations just googling and seeing how many people you know have studied with wendy mccollum when it comes to conducting it is super cool to see um but yeah no it's really great and um one of the other great things and highlights that you in your career that you've got to do is, is conduct one of um canada's national honor ensembles the national youth band uh in in 2018 and i was just wondering if you could talk about that experience uh working with the band
1: yeah, that was amazing. We were at McGill. Um, Barb Stetter and Jim Ford, human beings of the, the most amazing essence, mm-hmm. right, who who managed that group and make it into something that is more than, than music. It's more about cultural identity. It's about belonging to something special. Mm-hmm. And, and so for folks that have come through that, they know what I'm talking about. Um, great rehearsals, a great chance for um for students from all over the country to come together and and really i think what i learned the most about that um from that experience was to see how students really want to connect and i don't mean to to the me or to the music but really to each other You know, as we move into this online environment, I'm busy thinking about trust. I'm busy thinking about (laughs) not what I need to do, not what the learner needs to do, but what I need to do to connect the learners. Um, And that's what I saw. I think at the National Youth Band was they came together to perform some really difficult repertoire in some really intense sort of like concert, quick, unload, go, do, duh, and, you know, make great music. Definitely. But more importantly, um, learn to drop the veneer that we all carry with us and just right. melt into each other to become an ensemble in week, because that's what we're going to have to do online is create, a sense of trust without being able to be in the same room. And I know every, every uh, music educators in a different position of whether they'll be be, the in person or, or um, not, but that whole feeling of trust between people
0: Mm
1: -hmm. um, it's, it's important. (laughs) It's sometimes hard to find. It's sometimes hard to be the first one to give into. And that that's a cool part of NYB. Yeah.
0: Very cool. Very cool. And, uh, I'm now going to ad- admit something and it's that, uh, I always send the questions to my guests before the interview. <laughs> uh, and I always preface it with, um, let me know if there's something you don't want to talk about. Let me know if there's something you want to talk about. Wendy and I w- were discussing before the interview about, about these questions. I was thinking after we had our conversation, I've been very lucky in my education to, have very strong female uh, leadership to look up to, be it uh, Dr. McKay or be it, you know, my music teachers growing up. Um, and it, it's definitely something that I've taken for granted. Um, and it's certainly something that I I think that we should talk about. As we were talking, your experience is very different from um, from Jillian's. So I was wondering if, if you could maybe talk about being a woman and coming through, and you know, getting to where you are, and also the the specific thing of you know, being a mother uh, of two teenagers, and 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 you know how how you kind of balance um, that, and and being uh, you know a professor.
1: Right. I think it's an important thing to talk about uh, right now, mm-hmm. and not just the the gender piece, but just you know, what we are as wind band and who we are and that we're all encompassing and that we're about, you know, dropping those veneers, like we were saying earlier, and, and just being a community of music makers. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I was very fortunate that my, my teachers um, all the way through my studies Um, were very supportive of me as a musician and as a conductor, as a saxophone player, as a, I never felt as though, I never thought actually um, other than when I was trying to get a summer job and couldn't get one with decent pay because, you know, I could wait tables or, you know, waitress, uh, you know, cook, you know, that, that was one of the frustrating things growing up, always the financial deficit of, of, um, of earning at that time there was only a certain number of positions that were available to, to females. But other than that, I didn't feel like doors were closed to me Mm -hmm. because of gender, but I can say I have had, um, opportunities to be in positions where I have felt a gender, gender discomfort, Mm -hmm. um, you know, when, when it's time to go out for drinks beforehand and they decide to go to Hooters, you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah, or, um, you know, those kinds of things. And I've also had a chance to, to, uh, live and work in locations where, and, and have friends, African-American friends who, you know, uh, when we went into, um, a restaurant where you, you do feel that discomfort. Mm-hmm of treatment and so I think that you know sexism and racism they're all they're they're all connected um Mm -hmm. they're all the way that we perceive things as a society and and as individuals and so I definitely feel as though um I've had a chance to taste some of that Mm -hmm. um in in some different settings but I also don't think that I necessarily thought about it until it was all over you know yeah. and so I guess from that perspective um, I, I don't think it's worthwhile to dwell on it I mean I think maybe when things happen we need to recognize it we need to mm-hmm. discuss it and we need to move forward from there without holding any um, you know ill feelings about it um, but I do think that it is extremely um, different to be um, different one from another and particularly as I've moved through here um you know I felt sometimes people would take on roles as conductors as female conductors and feel the need to emulate their mentor who may have been a male and try to take on their persona or take on their tones or take on their and I really think that you know um we need to be true to who we are as ourselves. I learned that in a great deal from, from Jillian with her wicked Seinfeld sense of humor or from Paula Holcomb and her energetic go after it kind of musicianship, you know, masters of their field who, who are truly themselves to the core. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think that there is a pressure to take on, a certain mode of being or way of being on the podium to, to suit what we perceive needs to happen. And I'm, um, as a conductor and as a rehearsal technician, I pride myself on being constructivist. I want students to have to think I want them to put together where the change has to come from. I'd rather ask a question than give a direction Mm. and that's okay. You know, it's okay to be that way. It's okay to do it that way. That's who I am. Mm -hmm. Um, And I even know watching and being, my sons are presently 12 and 14, um, and interacting with my sons and getting a chance to see how they think and how their attitudes are developing. It's important for me to demonstrate to them who I am as a professional and as a parent. And I, and I know that, um, they will make choices and, and, and value systems based on what they see me doing and how they see me doing it and um, how they see me being a professional. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm still their mom. I'm still the one that has to remind them to pick up their socks and I'm still the one that has to, you know, teach them how to fry an egg. And I'm still the one that has to remind them to go for a, a, Boat of exercise. I just saw my son leave on a jog, which is why I I thought of that one. Um, And so um, I love being a mom and I think that um, we sometimes in music education can box ourselves. Um, As professionals, I I remember asking a student really early on who's your ment- you know mentor in terms of your, your finest teacher you remember. And they, they gave a sample and they said, oh, this teacher was so great. This teacher was in at the classroom at seven o'clock every morning so we could go and hang out and that this teacher was there after school every day and, and they never left until the last student had left. And they gave us coachings. You know, and I said, is that something you want to be? Oh yeah. I said, Oh, so you don't plan on having a family and the, and that just stopped the student in their tracks. And they looked at me like, you know Um, and so that whole idea of, of being comfortable with um, with who you are and, and deciding to, to be a parent or be a spouse and, and the ways that we, find the balance, and and we become better teachers. My friend Alan Lefave, who's a clarinet um, player and was the clarinet teacher and dean of the School of Music at Northern State Universities, the president of Valley City State University now, but he once said to me, in a conversation we were having about, you know, I was was like, Oh man, I had kids and I lost 40 hours a week in time that I used to stay after school. Or, you know, I'd go in for four or five hours on Saturdays." It's like, I lost all this time. And, you know, and he reminded me, um, he's like, but Wendy, you're, you're a different person because of it. Here's what I see. Here are the changes I see in you. Um, Being a parent is not for everyone and having family is not for everyone, but I, I think that maybe some people assume they can't do it because mm. of their choice, you know? Right. So I just want to encourage everyone to, to be who they, who they want to be, you know?
0: Yeah.
1: And um, yeah. So I, I mean, I, I love being a mom and actually COVID has COVID-19 and being at home has just given me, I mean, all of a sudden, five weeks of canceled travel, you yeah. know, weeks I was to be on the road this spring and all of a sudden I'm not going here or there or, and I'm at home helping with homeschooling and and working from home. And what a great fresh reminder that we shouldn't live on top of our space. We should live in our space, Mm -hmm. you know, and that our relationships, the more time we have, the deeper we can go. And I, I feel like this has given me the gift of, of better knowing my sons how they learn and who they are and what's important to them and what they want to learn. And right. yeah. So I, I feel like there's, there's gifts and, and there's time and there's space for us to be who we want to be. Mm-hmm. If we just make sure we take time to check in with ourselves.
0: Yeah, no, really, really great reminder. And yeah, because there's there's just, I think a lot of us, like you said, f- you know, feel the pressure to be our, our teachers or feel the pressure to be someone that we're not. So um, it's, yeah, a good reminder. And um, speaking of reminders, school's starting soon. <laughs> and, um, and I know, uh, you know, we're entering this new time of ensemble education. And I say a time because, you know, it is only a time. It will be back to what we once new again. Um, And throughout the summer, we've been meeting um, as Canadian post-secondary wind conductors, which has been really great. And one of my joys has been listening to you speak. And I know you gave, you know, you gave us a little sample of one of your presentations you were giving this summer, but then also um, just our last meeting last week or the week before we were talking about what everyone's doing. And um, I was wondering if maybe you could talk about some of the I don't want to say problems that, oh yeah, problems that we're encountering. Maybe some of the cool things uh, that you're doing at Brandon. Cause I, I really love kind of the model that you were talking about uh, a couple of weeks ago.
1: Thank you. Um, and thanks for saying that. Cause you know, I, f- you feel like you're blindly moving through <laughs> your space, trying to think, and we all have to know our own um, audiences. We need to know who, um, who we have and what they value. And mm-hmm. I, that goes, you know, that goes for everything. But um, one of the things that I see through this in terms of challenges is exactly as I was saying earlier about being able to connect the students to one another, because no different than my time at the University of North Dakota or the time at the University of North Texas or my time in a, in a teaching faculty, we, we learn so much from one another. And I, mm-hmm. I learn from my students all the time. And technology, of course, but other things, too, about how they hear, and how they listen. And and so I've been envisioning the model for me as, you know, the expectations for the student and making sure that they have the tools they need to be successful as an individual student. But then we need to think about what they're learning from us and what they're learning from each other and that notice of trust. And as you know, in an ensemble, the whole ensemble is about what they're learning from each other. Mm -hmm. So how do we virtually have them learn one from another, but also make sure that we're holding the individual accountable to the work they have to do. And, you know, there's so much that comes very easily now um and so i mean my kids can't imagine what life would be like without a microwave they're like they came home we were so and so they don't have a microwave like they had a third eye or something like you know they have they don't have a microwave you know because that's how we make oatmeal in in the morning here or whatever right and so um yeah just just figuring all that out so I've really been thinking about making those those um, accountabilities for the individual and then the interactions because let's face it, we learn more from each other than we do from any other source, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I I've come to the conclusion that it's a it's a bit of a combination of meetings, full ensemble, and and this whole idea of being able to listen to music together and learn how we hear the music differently and what we, what's important according to others that have studied the music. So we're, you know, doing some group things on, um, you know, composer of the week, you know, and getting some options there. Do you want to listen to Omar Thomas or do you want to listen to Vincent Persichetti, you know, listen to one of each of theirs and then pursue one more in depth so that I've got a sketch of of folks to listen to. And that's a little bit of a, a focusing because I feel like how people listen to and talk about what they hear is probably one of the skills that takes the longest to develop. You mm-hmm. know, we really need to be working on that all the time. I do too. And, um, and then I want to have options for the students. Motivation is key and they all come to us from different size programs. And I'm dealing with in an ensemble, we've got first year learners, second, third, fourth, and graduate students. Yeah. And so I'm trying to create a tiered system within that. And i um, I've, I've kind of decided to put the, Uh, folks into pods and then they'll have uh, level differentiation within the pods. So Um, if you're in a pod you can be in the first year second year third year fourth year if you if you find the first year second year assignment too easy you can flip up to the third year fourth year whatever but then the pods will be based on what their interests are and it doesn't have to be according to what their major is we have music education performance theory history research Mm -hmm. it can be based on what they're interested in right now so for this semester do you want to go into the pod that's focusing on skills for the music educator where they'll get scores and they'll have to play all the lines of the score on their instrument or or the performance where they'll have to prepare excerpts of professional auditions or the um, theory history where they'll have to pick a composer and and perform excerpts from multiple of the works and then um, write program notes for those pieces Or would you like to rather go into the um, arranging, composing, improvising pod where you maybe start with a chorale and write a variations on it and then you maybe take a score and and break it down or you um, uh, um, do an improvisation over a set set of of, um, changes from a Bach chorale or or Mm -hmm. whatever. So, so some of those things, and 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 it's not restricted to um, necessarily what I'm what I'm planning. There's always an other question mark, and and right. sometimes the creativity levels of of dealing with things can be huge. So, um, yeah. So that's some of the things that I'm planning for for that group. Um, You know, I have a wonderful colleague and former classmate of mine, Michael Brandon, who teaches with Kenley Christofferson in um, Selkirk. Mm -hmm. So Michael Brandon is um, a genius by all accounts. He's a really amazing educator. And we touch base pretty regularly. And I loved getting a chance to touch base with him in the spring when he was teaching online he did some wellness Wednesdays with his students and he had he used flip and teams mm-hmm. and he had some really great assignments and that was very inspiring for me this this spring to just see him be successful um, in that context and maybe not successful as successful as we'd all like to be in terms of oh my, you know, this clarinet player really nailed this or that. But in terms of making students develop skills in analysis and and um, constructing questions and, and searching mm-hmm. for answers, there's some positives here for uh, in a school my size because, you know, um, I can differentiate instruction like I never have before. Right. So you're a trumpet player. Yeah. You usually get the melody, but... <laughs> Um, you know, there's some tunes that you've rehearsed over time, I'm sure you could think about it, where um, it's, it's not a very challenging part, and the woodwinds, oh my gosh, are we gonna rehearse the woodwinds again? Yeah. Well, the virtual assignments get past and through that, right? And my percussion players can be working on some challenging percussion repertoire, and I was saying the other day, a great choice for me is gonna be some Ron Nelson mm-hmm. and my clarinet players my graduate clarinet player is going to have to work, learn the clarinet parts for uh, children's march over the hills and far away. And, and my flute players can be working on, you know, and the list goes on and on. So I can differentiate the excerpts that they're going to be expected to learn and we can go from there.
0: Great. Yeah, no, it's really wonderful. Cause one, I mean, one of the first things that we talked about was uh, kind of just the learning outcomes of being an ensemble. And it's cool to see how these pods really kind of address that. And not only that, but they also, you're giving your students choice to do something that they want to do, which is, you know, very important to, to maintain that kind of engagement and, and motivation like you were talking about. So it's super cool to hear about. And sadly, we've come to our last question. It's a question that I ask every guest. And I was wondering if you could give one piece, one single piece of wisdom advice to maybe future music educators, performers, what would it be?
1: Um, I think that I have this hanging in my office, and um, it it has a two tiered system for music education and performance. But the words are just "bloom where you're planted." And I told you I started off by saying I'm a farm girl, um, and I am in awe of the fact that my parents can make so much from nothing every single year, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a great analogy for all of us uh, to just think simply about how we can bloom where we're we're planted. Um, It takes effort um, and it takes focus, but it's definitely um, something that you're not supposed to be somewhere else. You're supposed to be here you're supposed to be doing exactly this right now because if you do it right, you will change the world through what you do. Mm -hmm. And not every one of our students go on to, to uh, even continue music or to be performers or to, to play in professional orchestras, but they all go on to be better human beings and Mm. to, to listen more intently and to, um, to move through the world in a way that that it has been affected by what we do and so i think that bloom where you're planted is is the best there's not the the right job there's not you know the the, the right level of literature there's not it's all about just um continuously you know cultivating what's right in front of you and and allowing that to just flourish in front of your eyes i think i think that's the best advice I can give
0: yeah oh well, it's beautiful advice and I, I just want to thank you so so very much for taking uh this valuable time to to speak with with me and 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 to share your story with the listeners um it's been so cool uh you know competing at National Music Festival or whatever it was I'd bump into some of your students from Brandon and uh, they would talk about you so I heard about you from them and now being in the field I hear more about you from my colleagues and I admitted to asking Mark, but I also was talking to Pete <laughs> and and I said, is there any questions I should ask her? And all he said is, Oh, wow. None that will fit for public consumption. <laughs> but he, but most importantly, he said, she's incredible. She's an amazing person, mind and musician. And, you know, after learning more about you today, I, I can't agree more. And I, I just thank you for taking the time. I thank you for everything you do and the inspiration you give. Um, so yeah. Thanks.
1: Thank you so much, Dylan. It's an honor to be on here. And, um, and I want to take just a super quick second to say thank you to you for these podcasts. Um, it's as we come through this COVID-19 uh, and we all are struggling to find how it is that we move through the world and we continue to move through the world. And I feel as though when we come to the end of next week and the week after we're changing the way we do things and when we are able to congregate in rehearsals again we'll be better at what we do if we keep focusing on what's important to us and and continue it's not just about being busy um it's not it's about taking time to listen to podcasts and learning more about how people think it's about taking time to reflect and you know i've i've gotten in a morning yoga ritual it's it makes me really think about what it is I'm doing and, and making my choices as conscious as possible. And I think that's a real gift that we've been given is the abil- ability to, to be so much more intentional. And if I can maintain this intentionality mm-hmm. um, through the rest of my life, I will be really, really happy. <laughs> so thank you for this, this wonderful addition to our intention to be intentional.
0: Beautiful, thank you so much, Wendy. This month's featured piece and composer is a gentleman I first met in 2011 in Anaganish, Nova Scotia, where we both were competing at the National Music Festival. He's also this year's Howard Cable Composition Award winner. That's Mr. Chris Byman. However, we won't be featuring that Howard Cable Award-winning piece, uh, Autumn Down a Maple Lane, but will be featuring his very exciting fanfare for band Rocket Summer. So here's a little bit about the piece in Chris's own words. Rocket Summer was inspired by the short story of the same name by American science fiction author Ray Bradbury. Found in his collection of stories, The Martian Chronicles, this vignette portrays a rocket launch carrying the first colonizing humans to Mars. As the rocket readies for liftoff, Billowing clouds of exhaust and heat, it creates some fantastic environmental repercussions for the winter-hardened citizens of a nearby Ohioan township. Growing up in cold Manitoba with cold Ohioan-like winters, I could only imagine the lush reprieve described by Bradbury in his story. The story takes perhaps a minute to read, but the lasting effect of the vivid images and warming words left an impact on me. The piece is also inspired by Gustav Holst's symphonic masterpiece, The Planets. Embedded through this short fanfare are snippets of his music written for Mars and Jupiter. Careful attention was paid to the percussion with sparse-slash-open scoring of Keyboard instruments depicting the harsh and bare landscape while drums, cymbals, and tam-tam create a sense of warm waves in a sea of hot air. This fanfare is warmly dedicated to my friend and mentor, Dr. Wendy Zander McCullum, who continually encourages all of her students to keep looking up. Here is Chris Byman's Rocket Summer, performed by the University of Manitoba Concert Band, conducted by the composer himself, Chris Byman. A big, huge, giant thanks to Wendy for taking the time to share her story and her thoughts with us today, and a huge thank you to you as well for, you know, listening and joining us today in the band room. If you want to learn more, I've attached links to the show notes found on our website, www.bandroompod.com, where you can find out more about what we spoke about and the music used for today's episode. If you like what you heard please go make sure to subscribe to the Band Room Podcast and give us a rating and that review and tell your friends, your cousins, your aunts, your uncles, your mom, your dad, whoever is nearby, how much you enjoyed the podcast. If you really love the show, consider donating to our GoFundMe page, helping to offset podcast hosting costs and investments into new equipment so that we can continue to bring you great content and great people. Follow us on our social media, at bandroompod, to keep up with what is on the go. And if you have thoughts on today's episode, or have ideas, or people you want me to interview for future episodes, leave me a comment on our website, or even cooler, leave me a voicemail on our new hosting website, anchor.fm. Stay safe, and be well, bandies. Thanks again for stopping by the bandroom.